please turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We continue to work through the Gospel of John. Um, on the church blog right now, we, we've been working through in our devotions through the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Yesterday brought the beginning of Samson's narrative, which involves the announcement to Samson's parent that he was coming, that Samson was coming, uh, that he would be a Nazarite from the womb, and that God would use him to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And part of the comedy of the story is that Samson's parents never realize who it is they're talking to until it's too late. Uh, in Judges 13, starting in verse 15, it says this, uh, Manoah, and this is Samson's father, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you, meaning for dinner, okay? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. You seem like a pretty swell guy when this happens and it comes to, we want to tell everybody about you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. His name, wonderful, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching as the flames are taking up this offering. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, right? It said that twice, right? They're still watching, and they see this happen, and it says, they fell on their faces to the ground. I think when it says they fell, I mean, I think it means they fell on their faces to the ground. Gideon had a similar experience after the angel of the Lord called him a mighty man of valor. Of course, Gideon's bravery wasn't yet being exercised against his community's worship of false gods. His bravery wasn't being exercised against the Midianite army. Instead, his valor was on its fullest display when he continued to question God and ask for more signs, more information, more instruction, doubting what God was saying to him. Gideon had a hard time mustering up courage to stand up to people. He was a coward in front of people. But God, on the other hand, then he was a mighty man of valor. Both Samson's parents and Gideon treated God the way they did because they had some major misunderstandings of just who they were dealing with. And as we continue now to work through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that trend continue as Jesus continues to reveal to the world exactly who he is, exactly who they were dealing with. And what we're going to see today is still taking place at the Feast of Booths, as we saw two weeks ago. Still in the same festival, still at the same time, that same week, as Jesus continues to reveal who he is. And the Jewish people there at that festival, uh, this, this festival is where Israel would be celebrating God's faithfulness and bringing them through the wilderness. That's what the festival of, festival of Booths was. So previously in chapter 7, Jesus, in response to that traditional practice of pouring out water each day to commemorate how God had provided water for Israel in the wilderness, 
uh, Jesus offered himself right then and there as the living water, promising that whoever believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. And now, as we read today, Jesus is going to utilize another picture from the practices of this festival, uh, another picture from Israel's celebration. You see, every night at the Feast of Booths, when it would get dark, the Jews would light great big lamps at the temple, and the flames would burn brightly, illuminating the whole area where they were in the temple and beyond to the outside, so everybody could see this illumination of the temple. And during this ceremony, the people and even the leaders, like the Pharisees, would spend time dancing and singing around these bright lamps in celebration of the way, to think about it, in celebration of the way that God led Israel through the wilderness by night, that pillar of fire. Remember, God led Israel with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 40, 36-38 says, Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it in it by night, in the sight of all those of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, all those 40 years. So then during their time in the wilderness, God led Israel at night with the bright light of this fire. And Israel was to obey the Lord and stay near that fire. And when it moved, to follow that bright light. Does that make sense? So, with this celebration fresh in everyone's mind, at this festival, Jesus says this. This is verse 12 in John 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in saying this quick sentence, Jesus said a whole lot. Um, This is the second of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. When Jesus reveals himself, where he reveals himself with these I am statements, he's revealing who he is, what he was going to do, what he is doing. Uh, The first I am statement was in John 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, which pointed to his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, that first I am statement could still be hard to understand how, how our creator, our God, would give up his own flesh, his own blood to take our punishment that we deserve on himself at the cross so that we could have forgiveness and freedom and life. And Jesus revealing himself as the bread of life taught us how he was going to save us. But now, Jesus revealing himself as the light of the world, he's now teaching us who he is. And that should cause our hearts to fall prostrate before our Lord, our Master, the Holy God. Israel prophesied this, or Isaiah prophesied this about the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah in Isaiah 60. He said, the Lord will be your 
everlasting light. Not just a big pillar of fire. The Lord himself will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. A light for the nations, not just you, but for the nations. And Jesus said what? I am the light of the world. So in this statement, in in saying that he is the light of the world, Jesus is declaring who he is. He is the Messiah. He is God. He is the Lord. And therefore, he is to be followed. He is to be followed. Uh, We could say this first. He alone, he alone is to be followed. Jesus didn't say, I am a light in the world. Jesus didn't say, find your light and follow hard after it. Whatever works best for you. And generally in our culture today, that would be somewhere within you, right? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So are different religions for different ethnicities okay? Jesus said, the world. The whole world is lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. So why missions? Why missions? Well, because the light of the world is Jesus. So it's either Jesus or darkness. Those are the options of every soul on the face of the earth. Jesus or darkness. He is the creator and the savior of every nation. He is saving a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Jesus is God and he alone is to be followed. He is to be followed. And he is to be followed. Followed. Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what does that mean? What are the implications here? And the word follow here means following like directions. It means obedience. It means submission. This is lordship. Where the light goes, you follow it. You follow him. So can you be a Christian without following Jesus? What do followers of Jesus do? They follow Jesus. Can you be saved and not submit to him as your Lord? What does the text say? Who has the light of life? Who has been given eternal life? Those who follow him. So then, can you live a life characterized by walking in darkness, living in sin, and be confident that you've got your ticket to heaven? Well, the answer has to be no. No. If you follow the light, you have the light. If you follow, you have. If you follow, you have. If you don't follow, you don't have life. And this is not saying that following Jesus your whole life has to happen and then you earn salvation. That's not that at all, right? What this means is that saved people follow Jesus. 
Christians walk in the light while the world prefers darkness. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's himself, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They didn't want light shined on their darkness. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They don't get it. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. That's us. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians 5, 6 through 11, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, turn the lights on. Expose them. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To follow Christ is to walk in the light. Are we still going to sin? We're still going to have problems. We're still going to sin. We're we're growing and being sanctified by the grace of God progressively. Progressive sanctification sounds awesome on one side because we know that we have room to grow and it sounds awful on the other because we have room to grow, right? But we know that we're growing progressively and that that awareness of our sin causes us to groan and to yearn for heaven and for the perfect sanctification that God has promised. And when we do sin, because we are in the light, we confess our sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts us and we are declared guilty, we say amen and we confess and we repent and we turn. Perfectly every time? No. But by the grace of God, we will. By the grace of God, we will. And then we press on, because God is faithful and just to forgive us. Those who are not followers of Christ love the darkness. You say, how could you love being in darkness all the time, not knowing Christ? Uh, Many of these people are obviously and unabashedly rejecting Christ, and that's not really hard to discern or to see. And some, though, might play the part or call themselves Christians, do, uh, call themselves Christians, do the benefits they think they can get. They pay lip service, they, and maybe even, uh, have prayed a prayer. Maybe, maybe they even got dunked in water one time. But when they see instruction from the Lord, when they're giving some, when they're given something in which to obey, when they're confronted in their sin, there's no change. There is no repentance. There are only excuses. Shifting of blame. It's not my fault. Rejection. Even rebuke. As if you are the fool for trying to love them enough to help them. And I I know when I was growing up in my life, 
I was much more, it was much more peaceful for me to play the part in my Christian home, growing up in my Christian home, so listen up, kiddos. It was easy for me to do that. It was peaceful in my home for me to go along with that. It was a greater benefit to me to go along with the flow than to rebel. And yet I was blind, dead, unsaved, so I didn't see what I was doing. I wouldn't have articulated it that way back then. I wouldn't have said, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I would have said, well, look at my family. What do you think? But I wasn't. I wasn't a believer. But even in my going to church, I was walking in darkness. I was going with the flow of my little world, my my little family culture that I'd been born into. And listen, we all live in America. I was mostly getting what I wanted. There wasn't really any lack for me in life. My life wasn't a great struggle or a hardship. We weren't rich or anything compared to American standards, but my life wasn't hard by any means. Makes me think of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, this is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. Remember that. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, the rich young ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. This guy did not keep every command. Would you agree with that? Jesus just said, No one is good. But this guy had a high view of himself. He thought he was good, as far as he could tell. And that's really all that mattered, right? That's all he cared about is, is, is what his view or his opinion was of himself. And that opinion trumped any other, even God's. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come Follow me. Obey me apart from all of your stuff. Obey me. Not as a part of the life you already have. Treasure me. Follow me. That's what Jesus said. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, saying that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Praise God. Amen. I read this in this context of a passage from John 8, and I can't help but think, You know, most of us are pretty wealthy, especially compared to the rest of the world. Most of us really don't know what it feels like to be hungry. We are a wealthy people. And if things are going pretty well for me and and I can keep the peace with mom and dad or with my wife or with whoever and do the church thing and yet retain control, retain possession of my own life, as far as I can tell, when in reality I'm a slave to my sin. But, you know, I want to retain control and have the benefits of Jesus without following him, without 
coming under his lordship and obeying him, that might sound pretty sweet. Realize many of us are just like the rich young ruler. And it was a miracle, like a camel going through the eye of a needle when you put your faith and trust in Christ. But with God, all things are possible. And to think that I can do my thing and have all of my comforts and have control of my life and also get the benefits of Jesus, that mentality, that life philosophy might sound sweet, but it's entirely damning. It's entirely darkness. It's darkness. As good it might, as it might look publicly, it's darkness, it's death, and it's willful rejection of God. It's a rejection of the Lord. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It is hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's hard to convince someone who has been going to church their whole life, or even for just a couple of years, that their actions and their repetitive decisions to wait until later to obey God, let's say, which is really just a rejection of God's commands, it's hard to give that evidence that they're truly lost. It's hard to convince people of that. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible for God. Now, speaking of hard to convince the Pharisees, as is usually the case in this gospel, Jesus has now spoken, declaring himself as the light of the world, and now it's time to hear their response. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Ha! Gotcha! Yes! They thought they were pretty impressive. They got that figured out. They think they've caught Jesus on a point that he even himself made in John 5.31. He said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. We got him on his own words. And this was the Old Testament law. Legal matters could only be settled with two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19. But hear what I said. Legal matters could only be settled with two or three witnesses. So the Pharisees tried to use the law so religious. And Jesus quoting of the law, that hypocrite, in a mocking sort of a way, to invalidate his claim. You can't be the light of the world because you don't have any witnesses. They are looking first to believe or to find fault and excuse their unbelief. They weren't even listening for truth. There's no humility. There's, there's only hard hearts and deaf ears and blind eyes. But concerning this law, here's the deal. This law, the requirement to have witnesses, was put in place. Why? To prevent people from lying. Because people lie, don't they? That's why this law exists. Like most laws that exist, it exists because people are sinful. The law was written for sinful man. Jesus isn't sinful man. And two or three witnesses didn't make the event in question true or false. It simply validated the testimony. If something is true, it's true whether you believe it is or not. You ever heard this one before? If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there, 
to hear it? Does it make a sound? Ooh, deep. Of course it makes a sound. Right? It doesn't make a sound because you heard it. It either does or it doesn't. Truth doesn't exist because I feel like I want to believe it does. Things are either true or they're false. False things don't become true because two people said so. Peer pressure or influence doesn't make things true or right. It merely makes them compelling. And I'm talking about the fear of man here. It's not the facts that are compelling. Regardless of the strength of the rhetoric, what's compelling is how I think these people are going to treat me if I disagree with them. Is that not what polls are going to be used for for the next year? And the Pharisees were counting on this kind of compelling influence. They knew and loved the fear of man, and they used it wisely in a sick, dark kind of a way. Think about this, though. If a person commits a crime, they commit the crime, and they're found not guilty, when they actually did commit the crime, does that mean that they really are innocent? Well, no. It just means that they were found not guilty, that people thought they were not guilty, but those people were wrong. Does that make sense? If Jesus is the light of the world, which he is, I don't get to deny it because Jesus didn't follow the rule written for sinful man to decide court cases. Nice try. This isn't a court case. This is God telling his creation to obey. Who's on trial? If this is a court case, it's not Jesus. But these Pharisees don't want to obey. They want to walk in darkness because they love it. So they looked for reasons to reject Jesus. And knowing this, Jesus answered, verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not. You don't know where I came from or where I'm going. Remember in chapter 7, they argued about this, about Jesus' birthplace and the earthly origin of the Messiah, whether anyone could even know where he might come from on this earth. Like he would just come out of nowhere and bam, there he is. They couldn't even seem to get that right or to be satisfied with it or to be settled on it. But Jesus is talking about a time much earlier than Bethlehem. And I think much later than Calvary. Where did Jesus come from? Did he begin to exist at conception? And part of me wants to say, wait until later, because this is going to come up again later in John 8, in the weeks ahead. But, But remember, Philippians 2 teaches us that Jesus emptied himself to take on flesh. Meaning he existed prior to before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Christ, the eternal Son of God, creator and sustainer, wasn't exactly only 30 to 33 years old at the time of John 8, was he? And where was he going? Romans 8, 34 says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is, that sounds like a present tense word, doesn't it? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. 
Right now, Christians. Right now. Jesus says, you don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. Praise God, we do. So Jesus is God and God is true. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus' testimony about himself could be nothing but true. And he came from his glory in heaven and is there today, right now. And the Pharisees, sadly, don't understand that, don't want to believe that. Why? And Jesus tells them, verse 15, it's because, he says, you, Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. Meaning by earthly standards, by by appearance, with beauty being in the eye of the beholder. Jesus says, though I judge no one. And this judging is the act of condemnation. Remember John John 3.17, Jesus said, For God did did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Pharisees were condemning Jesus and other people based on their own desires and their selfish, flesh-motivated views of the law. Legalism and a wrong sense of superiority. And think about it, the way of righteousness for the Jews who weren't the Pharisees was to do whatever they were told to do by the Pharisees and to think that the Pharisees were awesome. If you stayed within that game, you were good to go. If you didn't at least act like that or treat the Pharisees that way, watch out. And how in the world could these religious leaders come to practice their religion that way? In such a twisted way? Because they didn't believe. And unbelief, remaining in the flesh, remaining in the darkness, unbelief will never be convinced, no matter how compelling the evidence. Remember all of our numbers and stats and statistics last week? Church, we have the compelling evidence. We are the ones that have the historical proof. We have it. We have the compelling evidence. They have smoke and mirrors, rhetoric, power and influence, media, and often our textbooks. Remember, the things that we believe often aren't what are true, but what we are compelled to believe. So these Pharisees could not, they would not believe because they were judging according to their own fleshly, selfish desires. These Pharisees were judging everyone, including Jesus, in their unbelief by earthly, fleshly standards. And Jesus judges no one this way. God judges no one this way. So far in the Gospel of John, the crowds have been judging Jesus by what he was going to give them next. Not what he gave them the day before, but what he was going to give them next. And as long as there was a next, they were happy to stay around. And as soon as there wasn't a next, they were out of there, right? That was the crowds. Then the Pharisees, on the other hand, they'd been judging Jesus by how much he acted like and or supported or exalted them. As if they thought they were going to be the ones who personally groomed and unleashed the Messiah. Why wouldn't the Messiah have been one of them, right? They're the best, of course. So again, as we asked before, when you look at Jesus, and this is for us to think about, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Or better, what do you hope to see? 
Someone who will give you your every dream and wish? Someone who will prevent you from feeling bad and only making you feel good, regardless of what's been done or thought? Or do you see the king of the universe, your creator, your Lord, who has saved you and purchased you with his own blood? What did Manoah and his wife do when they realized who they were with? They fell prostrate. When you look at other people, what do you see? Do you see a potential source of pleasure and entertainment? Do you see someone who might make a good addition to the team? Who could make your life easier? Or maybe make you look good? Or do you see a soul that will last forever into eternity who desperately needs Christ? How do we make friends when we're little kids? We'll say kids when we're little kids because then we can feel better about being adults, right? When we're little kids, who do we think is going to be our best friends? The kids who act like us and look like us and play the same games as us, and right? That's how we make friends, naturally. But is that what people exist for? Or are they eternal souls who desperately need a savior? And we have him. What motivates you to delight in Christ? What motivates you to love him? What motivates you to love and to show kindness to other people? I have to ask, am I judging according to the flesh? Is my definition of beauty and value and rightness the same as God's? Or is it a different version? How much like the Pharisees am I? And maybe I didn't realize it. Do I justify treating people poorly or or speaking evil against them behind their back because I disagree with them? Or because they don't give me what I want? Do I really think I'm better than everyone else? And if they would all just agree with me, the world would be a perfect place? We might say, oh no, I don't believe that. Well, sometimes my actions say otherwise. And the words that I say say otherwise. Do I refrain from evangelizing or even inviting people to church because of what they, they will look at me like or because of how I think they will treat me afterwards? Do I see my neighbors as the reason my neighborhood is either good or bad to live in? Or do I see my neighbors as the reason God sovereignly placed me in that neighborhood? Do I see my coworkers as the reason my job is great? Or because my job, or the reason my job stinks? Or do I see my coworkers as the main reason, one of the main reasons I should work hard, work honestly, with excellence, in order to have a platform to point their lost souls to Christ? That can turn a job that I hate into an amazing opportunity. That can turn a neighborhood that used to be awesome until all these new people moved in into God, thank you for giving me all of these new people to share you with. Totally shifting that paradigm, isn't it? And church, I've alluded to this already this morning, but we're going into a climate now in the next year in our country, in our culture, where there's going to be an arena where all bets are off and we can get drugged into this idea that within the realm of politics, we put away what Christ called us to be like because of these two options that we seem to have. But that's, is that what Christ has called us to? 
We are not of this world. We're in it. And we're called to be salt and light. So we should be involved. But it doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us how to think. Christ is king. Uh, We can't imagine, should we really think that any of the people are going to fix everything? Do I look to political leaders like the Israelites looked to Gideon or to Jephthah, even though they live just like the pagan nations all around them? Or do I realize that the world has no hope outside of Jesus Christ as sheep without a shepherd, without the good shepherd? As we go through all of these things and we see ourselves responding, it's often not what we're thinking about on Sunday morning. It's how we respond in the heat of the moment, right? Would you agree with that? What do those things reveal? What is the main thing in my heart? Is it the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Loving my neighbor? Am I keeping the main thing the main thing? Or is it true that something else has become the main thing and my greatest desire? I think there are many ways that we could and should take a hard look into our own hearts and ask, where am I? Not if, but maybe where am I judging according to the flesh? And where God graciously opens our eyes to it, praise God and repent and follow him. Jesus then continues to elaborate on the darkness within which the Pharisees are are walking. This is verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Jesus is saying, if I were to judge, I'd do it correctly. (laughs) I'm not in the darkness. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And judgment, uh, any judgment that Jesus proclaims is the exact judgment that God the Father would proclaim. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is again stating his equality with God. He's proclaiming his own deity. And he continues to proclaim his deity in verse 17. He says, In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There's your two witnesses. I and the Father. Question, if Jesus is God, and then therefore if Jesus is eternal, and he's existed in all eternity prior to when he took on flesh, in perfect unity with the Father, in perfect unity with the Spirit, since before the creation of man, then who can testify to who he is? Who can be the second witness? Could any man accomplish that? And the answer is no. Only the Father, only the Spirit, and this is who Jesus gives for his witness. A man could verify the miracles that he did. Nobody doubted those. Man eventually would be able to verify the resurrection even, though they denied it and schemed to persuade people otherwise, because unbelief can never be persuaded, even as Jesus said, if someone were to rise from the dead. But Jesus is talking about where I have come from and where I am going. Who knows that? Who was there to experience that? God himself. God himself. But there's a problem. They don't know God. They don't know the Father. They're deaf to him. They're blind. They are in darkness. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, they said to him, therefore, sorry, where is your father? Judging in the flesh. What are they asking him? Where is your father? If they'd known his earthly backstory, they might be saying, go find Joseph of Nazareth and get him in here for questioning. But Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So why don't these Jewish religious leaders know who Jesus is? Because they don't have all the data? No, 
These religious leaders don't know who Jesus is because they don't know God. That's what Jesus just said. They were not believers. But they were Jews. And they believed in God, and they prayed. I mean, come on, they prayed. They had no relationship with God. They were lost, blind, dead in their sin. They couldn't see who Jesus was. God was just a means to their end. And that's how people wandering in the darkness treat God. I'm going to read Matthew 11, then we'll be done. Matthew 11, Jesus said this, starting in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John, and he's talking about John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then he began to denounce the cities. This is Jesus denouncing the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus says, come to me, follow me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You're walking and stumbling around in the darkness, follow the light and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm your Lord. I am God. Obey me. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you're here today and you've realized that you've been religiously wandering in the darkness, come to Jesus. He died on the cross to take the just penalty of our sin on himself. Repent. Ask for his merciful and gracious forgiveness. Come and follow the light of the world. Let's pray to him. Father, again, we are so thankful. Lord, I know in my heart I would be prone to want to do my own thing, to have my own answers, to use my own intellect and my self-absorbed idea of being wise in my own eyes, and to use you. To use you to be somebody who is supposed to give me what I wanted and keep me from hell. That's not who you are. 
God, I pray that we would, as a church, have an awe and a reverence and a respect that the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings died in our place. And that we would be amazed by this great light. And Lord, humble ourselves. God, humble us that we might follow you hard. Follow hard after you. Desire to be pleasing to you in all that we do, that whether we eat or drink, that all may be done to the glory of God. God, give us confidence in the truth. Lord, may we boldly go out from this place today and be ready, have the word of God on our lips, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would take the gospel to them, that we would show them kindness as we do it in our literal neighborhoods, as we do it on our children's sports fields or in their extracurricular activities, that we would do it with these children at, at the school nearby and at other schools where all of our children are going. God, may we be shining lights, pointing people to Jesus. For your glory, we pray this in his name. Amen.